Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, sequencing therapies in endometrial cancer beyond the first-line setting. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Merck Sharp and Dome. In this final podcast of our three-part series, Dr. Bradley Monk and Dr. Bhavana Pothuri continue their discussion on the treatment of endometrial cancer, this time looking at some of the key data on combination therapies as well as associated adverse events and how to handle them. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial5. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Monk is a professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and the Creighton University School of Medicine in Phoenix. He is also USA Director and Principal Investigator of Community Research Development at the Honor Health Research Institute in Scottsdale, Arizona, as well as Vice President and Member of the Board of Directors of the Gynecologic Oncology Group Foundation and Co-Director of GOG Partners. Dr. Pothuri is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the NYU School of Medicine, the Medical Director of CTO Perlmutter Cancer Center, and the Director of Gynecologic Oncology Clinical Trials at NYU Lagone Health Perlmutter Cancer Center in New York City. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Monk will begin our discussion. Greetings and welcome. My name is Brad Monk. I'm a gynecologic oncologist from Phoenix, Arizona. It's my pleasure to be here with my uh, colleague and good friend, Bhavna Pothuri. Uh, Bhavna, introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm Bhavana Pathuri. I'm a GYN oncologist. Um, I'm in New York at NYU Langone um, and the Perlmutter Cancer Center. And I am really excited to be here with Dr. Monk. And we're going to talk about um, endometrial cancer and new therapies and some adverse events and sequencing of these new therapies today. So excited. Yeah, I think it's very easy to sort of get on the bandwagon and then get all excited about the efficacy results. But all of that enthusiasm and all that improvement in treatment outcomes needs to be balanced against adverse reactions, which frankly are almost universal. I'm going to start with uh, some adverse reactions that are associated with single-agent immune therapy um, in second-line endometrial cancer, Keynote 158 and Garnet. Um, in Keynote 158, uh, grade three and four adverse events were low, uh, only 12%. Uh, 7% of patients discontinued, but they were there, and they sort of affected uh, all the various uh, immune-related categories. Uh, in uh, Garnet, uh, it was also very similar. Any treatment emergent adverse event occurred in 93% of patients, but the number of any grade three or worse was only 11.5%, and the discontinuation rate was also you know, very similar. So, so let's begin with immune-related adverse events. Uh, Bhavna, give us a list of what, what those sort of host of immune-related adverse events would be. And we don't need to spend a lot of time of it because immune checkpoint inhibitors have been around a long time, but I think we owe, owe some explanation. Yeah, no, I think they're important. Um, 
And I think they're important because it's important to counsel the patients that, you know, they need to be aware of them and they need to contact their healthcare provider right away. Because if we identify them early, we're going to be able to take care of them um, early. And, you know, if they're not identified and not taken care of, some of them can be fatal. So the most common um, IR um, adverse events are dermatologic. So rash, pruritus, blisters, ulcers, um, followed by gastrointestinal, which, you know, can present with diarrhea, enterocolitis, um, hepatitis, pancreatitis, these are all seen. Um, endocrine um, IRAEs include thyroid disorders, um, diabetes rarely, and adrenal insufficiency. And, you know, and I found that the adrenal insufficiency I found really difficult. Um, I had a patient who just couldn't even get out of bed. And then there's also pulmonary, um, you know, you can see pneumonitis. Um, and then there's also less common ones, you know, um, hematologic, you know, sometimes you can see like hemolytic anemias, thrombocytopenia, cardiovascular, you can see myocarditis, pericarditis, vasculitis, you can see some ocular um, IRAEs um, with scleritis, uveitis. Um, I've seen renal um, IRAEs um, presenting with nephritis, um, and then very rarely you can see neurologic encephalitis, myasthenia gravis. So, you know, that's kind of just the overview of, of the um, IRAEs that you can, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, think about when you're treating these patients. Yeah, that's a long list. So cumulatively, the number's not that high, but when you add them up, it's something to consider. I think both of us are members of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. As you know, Snyder uh, wrote in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2021 some recommendations. Uh, it was very clear that you have to be timely, uh, that the education has to be up to date, and you have to maintain a high level of suspicion and also utilize specialists. And so you got to grade them. Grade one, for example, should be uh, the ICI should be continued with close monitoring, except for some neurologic, hematologic, and cardiac toxicities. Grade two, uh, you can consider holding until they get to be grade one. Start sort of low dose corticosteroids, 0.5 to one milligram per kilo per day. It's really the grade threes that you start high dose, uh, one to two milligrams rather than 0.5 to one. And ultimately, those are continued for a longer time, uh, sometimes for four to six weeks and require a taper. And then the most severe grade four, I guess the most severe grade five, which would be death, but the grade fours in general require permanent discontinuation. The, the other thing that um, is the, uh, you got to be prevent them and you have to have a baseline workup, evaluate pre-existing comorbid conditions. Ideally, the patient would not be taking a steroid uh, and ultimately, if she does go on steroids, again, preventing further challenges with uh, prophylaxis uh, against infectious agents. So I, I think that's pretty well established. I think it becomes much more complicated when we give a combination. Uh, Pembrol and Vatnib has more indications because DMMR is, is less common. And in this setting, the adverse reactions are very complicated because you have to sort out the relative contribution so why don't you tell us about the sort of adverse events that you would see with lenvatinib? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as you alluded to, it's, you know, there are overlapping toxicities with Mm -hmm. um, lenvatinib and pembrolizumab that just makes it a a little bit more nuanced. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, both of the drugs can cause, for instance, diarrhea. But I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the diarrhea that lenvatinib causes is different than the diarrhea that you might see with pembrolizumab. Like, for instance, like the lenvatinib is your more garden variety, loose, watery stools, whereas the pembrolizumab may occur later and it could be more related, you know, with mucousy, bloody stools. So, you know, really trying to understand like not just timing, but also the character um, characteristics of these um, side effects are important. And another very common overlapping toxicity with the two is um, thyroid dysfunction. So um, obviously, you know, you had mentioned, um, you know, really monitoring their um, TSH and their thyroid function regularly is important and to correct those um, as indicated. And then, um, you know, the one of the most common adverse events with linvatinib is um, hypertension. So, you know, we're very careful with um, counseling our patients, um, you know, um, on this. And we actually give them a script, you know, when we're starting them so they have it. Um, We do weekly check-ins with them and encourage them to, you know, keep a a log and review that log of their blood pressures with them and and really institute medication, you know, in a very timely fashion. Um, And we found found with that education, our patients are pretty compliant. And, And of course, this takes a really dedicated care team and I have um, an amazing nurse practitioner and and team of nurses um, who I've had to educate and and really um, are on board in really getting these patients through these therapies. So um, the hypertension, the diarrhea, and then obviously we talked about the um, other um, AEs related to um, checkpoint inhibitors um, that you can see with the pembrolizumab. Um, but I think in particular, it's um, being on top of that hypertension. And I've also seen a lot of, um, you know, um, proteinuria with lenvatinib. So really monitoring their urine and, and um, you know, um, holding and dose reducing as needed um, has been very helpful. Yeah, I love that discussion. So, you know, it's I just want to emphasize that immune-related checkpoint inhibitor adverse events are not managed with dose reductions, but lenvatinib, that's really the key, right? And and so uh, the second thing is, is that, you know, it's, it, it's my experience that a CAT scan is really pathognomonic with colitis. Um, so in lenvatinib, colitis uh, would look different radiologically. The bowel wall would not be thickened. Also, with the lenvatinib-associated uh, diarrhea, you know, it gets better when you stop it. Uh, sometimes uh, you don't have time to, to, to figure it out because if the immune-related colitis is ignored, it can become very serious. You, you mentioned yeah. proteinuria. How would you sort out a proteinuria uh, anti-VEGF uh, versus uh, 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 immune-related nephritis? How would you sort that out? Yeah, I mean, the only definitive way to sort that out would be with a a biopsy, a kidney biopsy. But typically, if it happens earlier on, you know, I start by just holding the lenvatinib um, and um, bringing them back and repeating their 24-hour urine. And if it improves, then, you know, I know it's really lenvatinib-related. It's when I don't see it improve, then um, I'm very quick to get my renal um, my nephrologists on board and get them biopsied. Um, but I think that's another really important kind of overlapping toxicity that you have to kind of think about. 
Yeah, so we've, we've covered lenvatinib. We've covered uh, immune-related checkpoint inhibitor reactions. You know, PARP inhibitors are in, in discovery. Uh, there was a second Ruby 2 study, which is niraparib, and obviously DOE is dervalumab and alaparib, and there's great hope that because uh, checkpoint inhibitors uh, work mostly on DMMR, that if you add a PARP inhibitor, it will work in that PMMR subset. I think it's relevant and on topic just to summarize the most common adverse reactions associated with PARP inhibitors. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think um, the most common um, AEs related to PARP inhibitors are GI, nausea, vomiting, um, fatigue, um, and then lowering of your counts. And, you know, some um, of the PARP inhibitors have... Um, a greater incidence of thrombocytopenia, such as niraparib. But I think, um, you know, there's also an individualized dosing that can be utilized based on weights and um, platelet counts, um, which have reduced that incidence. Um, so I think being aware of um, those nuances are important when you're using PARP inhibitors. Yeah, so that's great. Uh, I think that's very relevant. And uh, hopefully uh, that that will be helpful uh, to the uh, listeners. The next thing I'd like to do is talk about sequencing. You know, one of the things that we didn't sort out very well with PARP inhibitors is sequencing. And as a result, uh, what happened is that the late line PARP inhibitor indications sort of went away. And they went away because the limited number of studies that we did suggested, I don't think they showed in any way, uh, a decrement in overall survival. Do, do we need to do a sequencing study? In other words, let's just take the results of Ruby. Ruby shows that carboplatin paclitaxel plus dostarlamab in the DMMR subset is better than carboplatin paclitaxel placebo in a very meaningful way. Now, this is different, though, than PARP inhibitors because in the second line, you also told us that dostarlamab has about a 50% response rate. Do we need to study the sequencing? In other words, is it better to use it later because not every patient that gets chemotherapy will will definitely will need that. So how, how are we going to sort out the sequencing issue? Yeah, honestly, I don't think we're going to need to sort out the sequencing issue because I think the earlier you use the immunotherapy, the higher the chance you're going to cure a patient. And so if our studies are positive, we're going to move those immune checkpoint inhibitors into the front line and they're going to become standard of care. And, um, and hopefully we won't need the second line. <laughs> Great answer. What a great answer. <laughs> that if, if you're curing the patient, there will be no second second line. And, um, you know, I, I, I love that. And I, I love your passion and your clarity when, when you teach. So that, that's really exciting. So um, moving forward, um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to sort of hear what you're most excited about in the development queue. We've talked a lot about uh, uh, treatments. Uh, trying to balance efficacy and safety. Um, what what is are you are you most uh, interested in, and then what are the unanswered questions? So what what are, what are you most interested in moving forward? So I mean, obviously we've talked about what's so exciting, right? We've talked about moving immunotherapy into the front line, which is going to happen based on um, the Ruby press release. Um, obviously, right. we'll have to wait on the data. Um, but clearly, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors will have a role in the front line. Whether they're going to replace chemotherapy or not is also, a, you know, something I'm excited about, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm really excited about um, 
new agents on the horizon. And I think, you know, just like we have made a lot of progress in ovarian cancer in the BRCA patients, I think Mm -hmm. we've done the same in the DMMR patients. But don't forget, we have a whole subset of patients that are mismatch repair proficient that are 80% of the pie in endometrial cancer. And those are the patients that I'm excited about really, um, you know, they become our unmet need. And, you know, when we're looking at that subset, right, the mismatch repair proficient subset is really broken down into, you know, the two additional groups, which are copy number low and copy number high. And I'm really excited about finding new treatments in those subsets. And, and some of those trials are on, you know, we're already kind of you know, thinking and the wheels are turning. We're looking at CDK4-6 inhibitors with um, hormonal therapies. We are looking at in the copy number low, um, in the copy number high, we're looking at, um, we're looking at uh, agents like um, WE1 inhibitors. We're also looking at agents like the HER2 ADCs. Um, and so I think, um, I'm really excited about the HER2 ADCs and all of these, um, new, new therapies, um, that we're going to be looking at, um, ATR inhibitors. So there's lots of, lots of, um, cool opportunities, um, you know, in endometrial cancer and in the patients that really need new therapies. Yeah. So let's count those down. So first of all, the patient population that needs the most help is the PMMR. Because if your DMMR, MSI high checkpoint inhibitors work well, I get it, we can do better. Second, okay, this, this idea of chemotherapy-free regimens, whether it's Pembrolin, Vatinib, or checkpoint alone, is transformational. And then these DDR, DNA damage response molecules, such as Elabrib, such as We1, such as ATR, is unbelievable. And, and we're seeing the results now. And then fourth, ADCs. And, and quite frankly, I don't, you know, HER2, as we already talked about, you know, oh, you check for HER2 and then you use trastuzumab. Really? Trastuzumab is the best you can do? That's old news. <laughs> it's old news. So I, I think we, it, it's a little premature, but there are small sort of basket studies that are evolving with these antibody drug conjugates. And, and let's just face it. In, in, in 2021, we got tizotamab bedotin approved in cervical cancer. And now in 2022, we have Mervituximab Servantancine approved in ovarian cancer. And, and we got to really buckle down so I can now say we have an antibody drug conjugate approved in every gynecologic cancer. What, what, what do you think of that? We got to do better with ADCs, just what you said in an initial cancer. They're going to they're gonna be in the copy number high group and, and there's going to be mm-hmm. a role for you know an ADC and um, and we're starting to look at it. So let's, uh, fingers crossed, and let's let's um, forge ahead and, and get those trials done so we get these therapies into our patients and improve their lives. Yeah, and, and, and I want to end on this. So, so you are known, quite frankly, around the world as a clinical trialist who leads by example, who enrolls on clinical trials. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, you run the clinical trials office for your cancer center, right? For all, all solid tumors. Is that right? Yes, I do. And again, that's I'm sure a labor of love. Um, but if you if you want to make a difference, you have to be a leader and, and that's what you do. Maybe you could just tell our listeners in closing, what's what are the secrets to building a clinical trial program? Give us oh. a few pearls. Just yeah, a few, a- just a morsel. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think you hit it on the nose. Um, it's it's something I'm passionate about. Um, yeah. And so I think, um, I think really um, just invigorating your team. So knowing that, you know, um, you know, I can't do any of this. Uh, you know, I lead a team of 270 people and oh. getting each of them excited about the work we do um, to know that we're making a difference in the lives of our patients is what the secret sauce is. And, and, um, and it's been, it's been a, a, a wonderful journey. Um, you know, just this past year, um, Brad, we doubled our accrual in just the GYN, um, in, in just the GYN DMG. And now I'm working on all the other DMGs. So, um, it's really, you know, it's just really, um, it's just to inspire everyone, um, with the work we're doing. And, and I think the results are what, what motivate us. Right. Yeah. That's very helpful. You know, I, um, I think culture matters and you said that Yep. and, and, and culture is driven by uh, the institution. So when I sort of talk about uh, clinical trial organizations, I say, look, first of all, I need an, a passionate investigator. Just what you said. Second of all, you need to have patience and we got lots of those. Third, you have to have uh, a study and I'm co-founder of the GOG partners organization, the co-director and what that organization does with your help and our team is to bring clinical trials to the community. But it's that fourth thing that helps build the culture, institutional support. And, and you're lucky and I'm lucky to work at institutions where clinical trials are prioritized. And now under the GOG partners mechanism, the, the, the funding sort of supports the, the organization. And I'm a big advocate of the National Cancer Institute and CTEP, but unless you have an NCI designated comprehensive cancer center, you may not be able to have those trials, but we have an option outside of the NCI, again, which is still very important if you're not an NCI designated comprehensive cancer center to work with Juji Partners. So I'm going to give you the last word. This has been so much fun. I've learned so much about uh, treatment, safety, targeted therapy, biomarkers, and the future. So I'll give you the last word, Bob. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, um, Brad. Um, I all I can say is um, this has been great. Um, you know, as much as I love clinical trials and bringing new medicines to patients, even more, I love making sure that everyone uses these new therapies in our patients to improve the lives of our patients. So. Um, this has been a pleasure, um, and it's been really fun doing this with you. And um, hopefully, we'll get to do another podcast together. Thank you. My pleasure, and it is about the patient. That is what motivates us at the end of the day. So, thank you to the sponsors. Uh, thank you to uh, the individuals that made this possible. Um, thank you, uh, and have a good uh, rest of the day. And so long for now. Bye bye. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial5. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.